The word of God from Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth, earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Blair. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As we sang earlier, Lord, I um, would you just comfort us in our distress, Lord, in this barren land, we do ask that you be our hope and strength, be our hope and strength until glory, teach us to trust and strengthen our resolve even through the preaching of your word. We pray this to the glory of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. um, Thank you. It's really good to be with you. Uh, If you're new, if you're visiting us, welcome. You're catching us at the back end of a sermon series on the book of Revelation. And we have subtitled the sermon series, Hope, Hope in a Battered World. And as we just heard the, the reading and We're now in the second to last chapter in the book of Revelation, which was chapter 21. And as I studied this passage, I kept thinking about that famous song by Coldplay called The Scientist. I'm reasonably certain that it was Coldplay. (laughs) The Scientist, uh, when the song came out, it was extremely popular, perhaps the number one song in the whole world for a while. And the song, it's a love song, but it's not like you think, there is a refrain that repeats after each chorus. You know, it starts like, nobody said it'd be easy. All right, I got to stop singing for you guys. (laughs) But then it ends. It says, oh, take me back to the start. I want to go back to the start. Now, the lyrics are a little bit cryptic until you watch the music video. So Chris Martin, the lead singer, he begins at the end of the video. So the whole music video is shot in reverse. And so it starts at the end, and it's working backwards. And so you see him going back to the start. And the reason 
why he wants to go back to the start is because you learn that he and his wife were in a terrible car accident and she dies. And it's this powerful video that captures the longing in every single human heart, the longing for things in this world to be reversed, this longing to go back to a time and place when everything was right in the world. And you have this longing as well because we all inhabit a world that is broken. It's a world with real evil where we experience heartache and sadness and we long for things to be reversed. And this reality, this truth about our hearts is given a very meaningful response in the vision that John, is, that John receives in the book of Revelation. So let me, if you'll allow me just to remind you where we've been and kind of how to think about the book of Revelation. So Revelation is not some sort of secret code book that we study to find hidden messages about the return of Jesus. It was written to people who were suffering and who were about to head into more suffering. And the apostle John, the author, was suffering as well. What he writes isn't theoretical for him. All of his best friends have already died for their faith. The 10 disciples after Judas, of course, were, they were all brutally killed. And somehow John survived being boiled alive. And now he's writing from exile. But now John's been called up into heaven and he sees all of these things and he's told to write them down. And if you'll remember, the very first part of the book of Revelation are these seven letters. And then after those seven letters, he moves into this genre that we've called apocalyptic literature, where there's like fire from heaven and bowls of wrath and prophets and beasts who come out of the sea. And it's very exuberant language, but it testifies to where all of history is going. It tells us how things are going to go and how things are going to work out under the sovereignty of God. Because what John is seeing has never been seen before, we don't have words to describe it. We don't even have the right vocabulary. And so what we get in its place is a symbolic universe. But when you put it all together, it tells a story. And now today, we've gotten very close to the end. And strangely, as we get to the end, we're starting to get echoes of the very beginning. Descriptions of heaven, descriptions of the new Jerusalem, they sound strangely like the Garden of Eden. Life on this earth is a journey to be with God in heaven. But heaven, and listen carefully, heaven is not like this ghost-like experience in outer space. It feels like the Garden of Eden, only more complete and more filled out. It feels strangely new and familiar at the exact same time. And it's here in this world. Life with God in heaven is our home, and home is coming 
to us. And everything in our body, all of our deepest longings and desire are to be home. And so we search for home. We hope for home. Now listen closely. When we hope, when we give ourselves in hope, it actually intensifies our pain, right? Hope longs for something different that we don't have, right? And by hoping, we're naming all the ways that our hearts are sick in this broken world. And so hope is a really vulnerable thing. And to remain hopeful, especially when your circumstances say that you have no reason to hope, it may even make you feel foolish. Like, do we really have a hope that accounts for all of the brutal realities that mark our life in this world? Do we have a hope that accounts for the realities of terrorist attacks and war and the evils of racism and oppression sickness, the untimely death of our loved ones, of broken relationships, of addiction. It is a painful thing to have hope deferred. And so there's this temptation to blunt the desire or just become cynical by saying, well, that's just how the world is. Or maybe we just turn off our hearts We numb it with social media. Maybe just enough scrolling will numb the pain. But listen, Jesus doesn't give us that option. Jesus invites us to hope even more deeply. The hope of home with Jesus will acknowledge the full spectrum of our experiences in this world. All of the sin and sorrow and sickness And yet defiantly say, these things will not have the last word. Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will bring with him the healing of heaven, the healing of home. And when he returns, this is what we can expect. And this will outline our sermon for today. For you note takers, we'll have two points. When he returns, what we can expect is a fulfillment of a promise of wholeness and then a promise of dwelling. So wholeness and dwelling. First, a promise of wholeness. Now, this theme of going home seems appropriate as the holiday week begins with a mass pilgrimage. Many of our own are not even here today because they've already begun it. We gas up our cars. We check our bags. We make sure that we have our earbuds We wear the right kinds of shoes that are easy to take off as you go through security. You maybe go through terminals or highways, or you cross borders, go over rivers, through the woods. Maybe to grandmother's house we go. But we sleep in hotel rooms, or we sleep in guest rooms, or we sleep on couches. We will spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, and long hours doing it for one purpose in order to be home for the holidays. But what are we going to find when we get there? Some of us will find a loving and protective home, a place where we're seen and known and accepted, a place of belonging. 
a refuge from the harsh realities of the outside world. But I know that not everyone will find that. Instead, some of you will find fault lines and family politics. Some of you will find a barrage of questions like, hey, why aren't you married? Have you gained weight? Why don't you have kids yet? Why do your kids act like that? Is that a new tattoo? And it might just end with contempt and shame. And then maybe you will employ your sarcastic style of relating in order to hide your envy or anger. Or others might just employ the, a good old-fashioned pity party, pity party, making others feel bad for making you feel bad. But here's the point. Even this Thanksgiving week, we could find that home is more elusive than we thought. You make the pilgrimage home, and you find that home is harder to find more than ever. But whether you have a harder home life or even a great one, either way, you will find that nothing satisfies your longing for home because we were all designed for another home, a home that we have never seen. We are all cosmically homesick. The solution is not to muffle this homesickness, but rather we must defiantly hope more deeply. And the Apostle John brings us into the symbolic universe of home where we find the promise of wholeness, which can satisfy. Look there in your Bible in verse 1. Should there also be in your worship guide. Verse 1 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So what John was trying to convey is not that in the new earth that there are no oceanfront views. That's not what he's saying. See, in the wisdom literature and in the prophets, often you see the sea. The sea represents this place of chaos and fear. And even in the context of the book of Revelation, if you'll remember in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, the things that terrify us most come up out of the sea, like the great beast and dragon. It's not insignificant that one of Jesus' most famous miracles is what? When he calms the sea, he tames the sea. And what a home with no sea means is that we can finally rest from everything in this world that terrifies us. That we no longer have to be afraid. The source of those things have no place in our eternal home. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. All right, so New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So even now, remember from last week, as God calls us to leave Babylon, he's not asking us to live as nomads. He's calling us home. A bride city awaits us. And it's really important to understand that it's not that we, it's not that we are leaving this world and heading upwards. 
It's that the new Jerusalem, the city of peace, that's what Jerusalem means, it's coming down to us. The bridegroom is coming for us. And what will he do when he arrives? Look at verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. In this home, we get rest from all that is sad. John says that there will be no more tears, like physical tears, no more mourning, no more anguish. In this new reality with our bridegroom, there will be no more pain. And so, like, your complicated relationship with your body, when it doesn't do how it was designed, it will be resolved In this new glorified body, there will be no decay, no dysfunction or breakdown. You'll even have this renewed will with renewed emotions, with a renewed personality. Jesus says he is renewing everything so that we will be perfect, imperishable. We're still us, but it's imperishable, body and soul. And none of the former things hang around. Nothing will catch us off guard and just trigger us like an alarm. None of it. I mean, can you imagine having to, never having to wake up again to a headline that says 50 people were killed because of a tornado or 30 kids were killed because of a school shooting? See, this is a picture that our Father is going to take you upon his lap and with the healing hand of a king, he's going to wipe away those tears from your eyes. And that word wipe away, in the Greek, that word literally means to obliterate without evidence. This is the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in Colossians 2, where he says that we can have forgiveness in Jesus because he canceled our debt that stood against us. That's, that word canceled is the same word. Jesus wiped away the debt that stood against us. And so, as we see in our passage, our Father will wipe away. He will cancel. He will obliterate without evidence. Our tears, the source of our tears are now undone. And then verse five, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Notice that it does not say that he is making all new things. He's saying that he is making all things new. When Jesus, the Son of God, by way of his incarnation, robed himself in humanity, when God, the Son, steps into the world, he became a part of the created order, taking on a real body. And by doing so, he is powerfully affirming the goodness of creation. The creation is good. God is not just getting rid of it. 
And we see here God's intention to restore and perfect this world in every single way. And so there's both continuity with what we know and yet also this blessed discontinuity. The resurrection of Jesus will animate the fullness of this new Jerusalem, our new home. You know, I can remember when I, um, I got my first cell phone and then I got a second one, which was like a flip phone. And then I got a third one. And the third one was breathtaking because I could take my phone and I could put it sideways and then I could push it up forward. And I had an entire mini keyboard that made texting easy. That meant, kids, you didn't have to press each number three times to get to the letter that you wanted. It was like breathtaking. And then do you remember when Steve Jobs gave us the very first iPhone, it was unbelievable. It's kind of hard for younger kids to understand how it literally changed everything. And now, just think about that phone that's in your pocket right now. It would make the iPhone 1 look so primitive, wouldn't it? I mean, the the iPhone 1 can't even compare Listen, there is a kind of intimacy and fullness with God, a wholeness that you and I can't even imagine. We're just so impressed with iPhone 1s, right? We literally can't think of it because we don't know what we don't know. And so it makes your best memories look like an iPhone 1. There's something far greater that you can't even imagine. And we know this about, we know this about our, our wholeness that it is filled with infinite wonder of the inexhaustible glories of God who invites us in and makes all things new and will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And what the apostle John wants for us through this vision in chapter 21 is to understand that we have eternity. We have a shape of eternity in our hearts that We live after we die. You understand that? That we live after we die. That there is this everlasting, imperishable aspect to who we are. And you can never forget about this. And so before you think of yourself as young or old, before you understand yourself as rich or poor, before you think of yourself as a business owner or a teacher or a banker or a parent or a student, Before your mood is impacted by your cholesterol numbers or your performance review or the stock market, before any of those things shape how you think about yourself, you need, you must be profoundly gripped and molded by the idea that you were destined for an eternal home with God forever that we will live after we die. And you can't even think about this too much. Like it's impossible. You need, you must live in light of the fact that we are all going to live forever. This present broken existence is simply act one. This is just act one. Act two is very brief. It's the judgment that will come very soon for all of us. And when you hear that word judgment, it's not that God is being judgy. 
It's that there is this reckoning that what you say about Jesus matters. And then as we see in our text today, act three, life eternally with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's really important that we stop thinking that what we see is all that there is. There's so much more. Or that every good thing that is supposed to happen to us is supposed to happen now. You must stop thinking about it that way. There's nothing in the Bible that promises us that. And in fact, the reason why John writes to us in the, is because in this life, it's quite the opposite. There's a lot of lack. Act one, where we live, is filled with fears and tears, but don't give up. All that you were destined for, all those deep longings in your heart, those longings and desires are not evidence that something is wrong with you. They are evidence that something is right with you. You have eternity stamped on your heart in the wholeness that you are destined for. The home that you are looking for will be yours. That promise of wholeness that satisfies will be fulfilled. Now, this promise of wholeness is matched only by the promise of God's dwelling with us. God's dwelling. This is our second point now. I wonder if any of you got the opportunity to see that Pixar movie, uh, Onward. It had the voices of Tom Holland and Chris Pratt. Those guys are fantastic. It got released at a terrible time. It was like during like on the edge of a pandemic. And so it probably did not get the views that it otherwise would have. Um, but the movie Onward, this cartoon movie, it it takes place in this mythical universe where magic used to be commonplace, but now magic is becoming obsolete, being replaced by technology. And the plot follows two brothers whose father died. Uh, and the, the father died before the younger brother uh, knew him, but when the older brother was little, so he does have memories of him. Uh, for the younger brother's 16th birthday, the mother presents both of the sons with a gift. And it is a surprise gift from their father. And the father gave them a visitation spell. It's a visitation spell that can resurrect the father for one single day. It's an opportunity to see their dad. Well, as they're doing it, the spell gets interrupted, but they are undeterred to see him. And so this puts them on this terrifying adventure where they face all kinds of obstacles. They face even possible death. And the reason why they are on this terrifying adventure is for one reason. They risk it all so that they can see the face of their dad again. Well, John t is telling us that there is a day coming when we will be able to behold the face of God, where you will be able to see the face of heaven that looks at you and makes you feel your dignity and worth. Look at verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, in some ways, verse three sums up where all of sacred history is going. (laughs) The promise of dwelling is supposed to set your soul on fire, but you might miss it if you read it too casually. For those of you who might be a little bit unfamiliar with the overarching story of the Bible, you might not feel its weight. So let me take you briefly on a journey through the Bible to show you how verse 3 is, in some ways, the culmination. So that word dwell in verse 3, it appears twice in both noun form and verb form. So in the Greek, if you were to literally translate it, it means tent or tabernacle. So you could read verse three, like the tabernacle of God is with man and he will tabernacle with them. He will tent with them. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Okay, go back to the beginning. God creates the heaven and the earth. And in the earth, there is this garden. And it's only Adam and Eve at this point. But the idea is that humanity is dwelling with God. So God's present with mankind is sweet and it's life-giving. Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful, to multiply with the idea that the garden is filled with God's presence and that that garden would expand its borders and fill the whole earth. But you guys know the story. It doesn't go so well. And Adam and Eve want a divorce from God. And it causes all kind of catastrophic spiritual vandalization an alienation that they had no idea was even possible. And the worst part of it is they, Adam and Eve, mankind was alienated and separated from God himself. So Adam and Eve hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord uh, by jumping into the trees. And that presence of God, that presence of God that used to be comforting is no longer comforting, and now it's terrifying. But strangely, as an act of grace, Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, which means that God and man no longer dwell together. His presence is just too much. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 59, he kind of summarizes what's happening there when he says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Now, this separation between God and man was never supposed to be that way. As early as the third chapter in the Bible, you begin to hear rumors of God one day coming to dwell with us again. There's a longing and a waiting and a promise of that dwelling to come. So after Israel crosses through the Red Sea, miraculously, in the wilderness, God says to them in chapter 29 of Exodus, he says that they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might, what? Dwell among them. So the dwelling promise is already squarely in their imagination. The idea is that when they get to the promised land, it will be kind of like a new garden of Eden where God and man will dwell together. God even says in Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among you. Now, Israel's in the wilderness. 
they're instructed to build a tabernacle, a tent. This is going to be where the immediate presence of God dwells. And so they're giving all of these elaborate instructions on how to build it. And they do it. And they build it, and it's dedicated. And when it's dedicated, fire comes down, smoke comes down, and the people have to get out. The Spirit of God is there. Now God lives in their midst, but it's a very terrifying presence. It's a tenuous presence. God is technically near, but it's so dangerous that it feels like he might as well as be far. So that tabernacle is with Israel through the period of the judges, through tribal warfare, jealousy, bloodshed. Finally, they get a king. Then they get a second king. And then they get a third king. And that third king, his name is Solomon. And he builds a permanent replica of the tabernacle, which is now called the temple. God is going to live in Jerusalem in the temple. They build it. They dedicate it. And at the same time, the, the, the same thing happens as what happened with the tabernacle. Fire, smoke, spirit of God, and the people have to get out because it's so terrifying. And again, God is near and far at the same time. That temple stays in Israel for roughly 400 years. Then the Babylonians come and they utterly destroy the temple. They take and steal all the artifacts from the ba- uh, and take them back to Babylon. And then 70 years later, the temple is rebuilt and it's dedicated in 516 BC. But this time when it's dedicated, there's no smoke, there's no fire, there's no spirit. It's just a building. And something's different in the second temple Judaism. In fact, Pompey, the Roman general, He comes in 63 BC and he dared to go into the place that no others dared. He dared to go into the holy of holies, the inner sanctum of the temple. He walks in there callously and he tells us, and we know this through Herodotus, that when he went inside the holy of holies, it was just empty inside. Well, 70 years later, a small child is born rumors that this child is the promised king of Israel. He is the promised one, the Mashiach, right? And John says that he is the eternal word of God who became flesh. And this is what John says in verse 14 of John chapter one. The word became flesh and dwelled and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, fire, smoke, Spirit, all in a man. The Son of God lives a perfect life, and his life astounds both the religious and the irreligious. God is truly dwelling with man. But then he goes off and gets crucified. But then three days later, he is raised. The Word became flesh, and now has been raised from the dead, and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. But then he returns with Pentecost. It's the spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit returns to dwell. But not simply in Jerusalem now, right? But in his children, in believers. In other words, Jerusalem now goes global. It doesn't just stay in Jerusalem. It goes to Judea and Samaria and through the entire Roman Empire and even to Denver, Colorado. And so here we are. 
we have a very meaningful presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ with us. But we're still waiting because this world is still catastrophically failing. And sometimes, sometimes God does feel very present. But other times, and dare I say it most of the time, God feels distant or even absent. And this world where I know him to be king is filled with wars and rumors of wars and evil leaders and cancer and hurricanes and racism where, where people walk into groceries and shoot it up. Violence in our cities, church splits, marriage splits, inflation, broken relationships, pandemics, and even darkness in my own heart. And we're all waiting. We're waiting for a time when we'll stop crying. Waiting for a time when our body will not betray us. Waiting for a time when my friends, when our friends won't betray us. Waiting for a time when we won't betray our friends. And you know what all of this is called? Homesickness. We are homesick for heaven. There's this deep yearning in our soul and we can't even quite put our finger on it. We just know it's there. And what the apostle John is telling us is that our father has not forgotten about us. He's coming back to dwell with us and that we will be his peoples. Actually, that word there in verse 7 is, is peoples. It's plural. That the kingdom of God can do what no country can do. Bring people from every culture, from every color of skin, from every tribe. Bring them together so that they love each other so perfectly that they're closer than family. Like they're tighter than blood. Because they share the same heavenly father. And when the new heavens and the new earth come down to make all things new, when God is dwelling with us, you will never get bored with him. You won't say, gosh, you know, I've been here 10,000 years. I'm kind of getting bored. <laughs> not at all. Sam Storm, the theologian, he puts it like this. He says, heaven is not one grand momentary flash of excitement followed by an eternity of boredom. Heaven is not going to be an endless series of earthly reruns. There will be a new episode of divine grace every day, a new revelation, every moment of some heretofore unseen aspect of the unfathomable complexity of God's divine compassion. So verse 7 the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That is to say, the one who conquers is the one who endures all things in allegiance to this Jesus, this king. The one who endures, even though it's extremely difficult to love Jesus in this life, like the world, most of the world just thinks that us in this room are just crazy. Like we just believe in a cosmic Santa Claus. They just think we're crazy. But as you endure, you will not be forgotten. Your love 
and your struggle and your endurance is seen. And God will look you in the eye and say, my son, my son with whom I am so pleased. Now, sisters, don't be put off by the gender-specific language here. In the first century, in the patriarchal system, only sons were given the inheritance of the fathers. And so for all of Christians, men and women, to be called son meant that God was breaking down all of those barriers for our sisters. Women in the first century were not put off by that language. Their hearts melted at the thought that as followers of Jesus, they would get the full inheritance of God just like their brothers. And so here's the point. This passage, chapter 21, is inviting you to imagine and dream of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. But right here, of God making all things new. And I want you to think about heaven. To set, I want you to set your mind on things above where Christ ascended and is at the right hand of God the Father. Like we need, we must start focusing, even obsessing, obsessing on the fact that what is coming is better. I think that the only way that we survive this life with a level of joy and peace is by obsessing on it. We need to start focus on believing that heaven is truly better than the broken world, even its sweetest moments that we're presently living in. You know, sometimes there is this critique that Christians are, Christians are too heavenly minded and that they don't even care about this life or this world. And there are some reasons for that, and I think that we could sympathize with some of those critiques for sure. But the truth is, I wish we were heaven-minded. My experience is that we don't think about heaven at all. We're just obsessing about this life. That's my experience. Not that we're heaven-minded, but it's that this is all that we think about. I want us to obsess about a life with God. We don't even have the imaginative categories to understand all the ways that our souls will be satisfied. But listen, keep your eyes heavenward. It will change you if you do. It will free you from the things that enslave us in this life, right? That, that need to be liked, needing more money, needing everything to work out the way that we want needing our expectations to be met, all of those things that, that disappoint us deeply. In this life, as we think about heaven, we'll actually begin to fade away. We'll endure them with much more grace. And all the good things that our soul craves, all that we need home to be, that we want home to be, will come. And so when Coldplay sings, oh, take me back to the start, He's singing for a promise of wholeness and he's singing for a promise of dwelling. And the best parts of the start will be, us, will be with us when act one ends. And it will be so much more than we think. But for today, 
Let us bind ourselves to this Jesus, the one who lived the life that we should have lived, the one who died the death that we should have died as our substitute, the one who did that in our place. Bind yourself to him. May you be found hidden in him. You were destined for eternity. And so in this life, may his sufferings be our sufferings, but also may his resurrection be ours. Amen? Amen.